If you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 5. John chapter 5. We've been here in the Apostles' Gospel, the Apostle John's Gospel, for a few months now. And we arrived at chapter 5 last week. And I want you to look at your copy of God's Word and follow along as I read from the English Standard Version beginning at verse 1. And uh, we were in these verses last week, but there was more than we, could, than we could wrangle with last week. So we come back to this passage this week to, to go a little further. Let's look at verses 1 and following, John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, let's pause right there for a moment. I dealt with this at length last week, and I encourage you to go listen to that sermon if you weren't here last Sunday. Uh, But I'll briefly point out here that modern translations either bracket part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 or put them in the footnotes because... The oldest manuscripts that Bible translators now have available to them do not contain part of verse 3 or all of verse 4. The thinking is that some copyists had made marginal notes about what was taking place at this pool, Bethesda, and inserted uh, later, copyists came along and took those marginal notes explaining this and then put it into the text. And so later copyists come along and, it, and if you have a King James Version or New King James, these, these are not bracketed, they're not removed, but, but it's likely that this doesn't belong in our Bibles. And it's important to note that removing these doesn't actually weaken any doctrine or hist- historical matter of the Bible. So... Here's what's not included if you have a modern translation, or at least it's probably bracketed in your translation or in the footnotes, where verse 3 continues and says, waiting for the moving of the water. And then verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever diseases, a disease he had. So again, do listen to last week's sermon for a more complete explanation of why part of verse 3 and all of verse 4 should probably not be included in the text of the Bible. Again, this was likely a marginal note that a, a copyist put in explaining this superstition of this healing properties of this pool when the waters were stirred. Now, let's move on to verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They said to him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This, is, this was why, says verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Last week, when we came to the beginning of chapter 5, we found Jesus entering Jerusalem, and when he entered there, he went to the pool called Bethesda. And we learned that the reason these blind, lame, and paralyzed people were all there was because of this, this superstition that an angel was stirring the water, and they believed that when the water was stirred, that the first person into the pool would be healed. Now, we don't know that that's actually the case, that an angel of the Lord was stirring the water or not. But that was the belief of the people. That's what they came to believe. So Bible, uh, some Bible commentators point out that it's possible that there were intermittent springs, in fact, that caused that stirring of the pool. That's a possibility. Either way, these people came, and they came in great number, and they kept coming, day after day, and they kept hoping to be the first one when the, when the pool was stirred, to be the first one into the pool, into the water. And if you can imagine the chaos that that would, uh, that would create, with, with all the excitement that came with the stirring of the water and the pushing and shoving and people trying to get into the water, it's not hard to understand how the superstition over this place got started and, and why this was a popular spot. That's the scene here as Jesus comes to this pool of Bethesda and he approaches this one man. Think of that. How wonderful that we're reminded here of how gracious the Lord Jesus Christ is. As we've seen before in John's Gospel, that Jesus was not too busy to minister to one person in need. How encouraging this is. This man had been an invalid for 38 years. Just think of this, that Jesus approaches this one man. And verse 6 says that when Jesus saw him, he asked him if he wanted to be healed. Well, certainly this man wants to be healed. That's why he's at Bethesda. But Jesus asks him anyway. And as we noted last week, the, the answer of this man was interesting. It's, he didn't actually give an answer. He gave a complaint. He didn't say yes. He complained. He says to Jesus, uh, just think of that. Uh, here's this man who's been an invalid for 38 years, and he's speaking to God in human flesh. This man doesn't realize this, of course. And in verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, before we quickly move on, we ought to stop here and pause here for a moment and remind ourselves that we're not much uh, unlike this man, are we? How quick we are to complain. 
rather than turn to the truth. How quickly we are to complain rather than remind ourselves of the truth of the Scriptures that that we say we believe. I trust you say you believe the Bible. I hope that's true of you, that you believe God's Word. And yet we often say that. I believe the Bible and I believe that's true. And yet, when we bump into things that are difficult and find things that are challenging, we find ourselves complaining instead of preaching to ourselves the truth that we know about the Bible to be true, the promises of God that we know to be true. Instead of asking the Lord for help, we often choose to complain and and shame on us if we're pointing our fingers at this fellow who's complaining. That was this guy, this fellow, here at this pool complaining. Jesus is standing right there, the one who could heal him, asking him if he wants to be healed, and he doesn't say yes. He complains about his circumstances, but thankfully we see God's grace here. I hope you see God's grace in your life. Do you recognize it when God is gracious to you? I hope you do. How important it is that we be watchful and aware of all the grace that God shows us. He shows us much more than we see, I think, than we recognize. But we see God's grace here, and Jesus merely speaks and tells this man to get up and take up his bed. And not only that, but walk. And verse 9 says that at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus spoke, and the man was healed immediately, and he walked. Remember everything the Apostle John is sharing for us in this gospel? It's for the purpose of making it very clear. As I've reminded you several times and will continue to do, he says in John 20 and verse 31 that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So what John is showing us are only a few of the interactions Jesus had with people. Just a few of the people that He helped. Just a few that He ministered to. There were many more. In fact, here's the very last thing John says at the end of this Gospel, John 21 and verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So obviously Jesus did a much more than John is showing, showing us. But John is showing us so that we will know who Jesus is. So that readers of this gospel, the Holy Spirit moved John to write, so that readers of this gospel would, would recognize who Jesus is and trust in Him as Savior and Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. So all these things that John is bringing together for us in his gospel are to help us see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, God in human flesh. And the account here in Jerusalem serves the purpose very clearly. We'll see that as we continue. We're going to be shown in this encounter this man had with Jesus because it, it, how God is at work, not only in the lives of this man, but in other people. In this account, we're being shown this encounter this man had with Jesus because it's more about his need for spiritual healing than it is for his need for physical healing. Did he need help physically? Absolutely. And Jesus healed him. But ultimately, Jesus' primary concern was for his spiritual health. 
That, in fact, is why later we see in verse 14 that Jesus finds this man in the temple and tells him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What he truly needs is to turn from sin and turn to living a Christ-like life. Because if he doesn't trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, he faces something far worse than being lame for 38 years. And that's hard for us to fathom, isn't it? When you think of that, you think of your physical ailments, and this man's physical abilities were extremely limited for 38 years. And yet, there's something far worse than that. Because if he doesn't trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, he faces eternal separation from God. He faces an eternity in hell. And yes, Jesus did heal many sick. And he did give sight to many people who were blind. And he did heal many people who were lame. But he was really here to seek and to save the lost, says Luke 19.10. There's nothing more important for us all to deal with than our eternal destiny. We've got to be careful that we don't uh, corral ourselves into thinking that it's all about the here and now. That we don't close off from our minds the importance of thinking about eternity. That's what we see here as Jesus deals with this man at the pool of Bethesda, and then at the temple. Nothing is more important for this man. In fact, it wasn't his physical needs that were as important as his spiritual needs. And all mankind must deal with this. Nothing more important for this man and all mankind than to deal with our need of Jesus to forgive our sins and then trust Him to do His continual, ongoing work as we take in the Word and we hide it in our hearts and we seek to live for the Lord. But what we find next is that not all people agree with that. I would guess, I would venture to guess this morning that most of us agree with that statement that I just made that the most important thing for us are the spiritual things. And we don't always live that way, do we? And that is a challenge. But we would agree in our hearts that we need, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. We need His Word and we need His help. And those are some of the most important things in our lives and yet often we forget about them. But what we find next is that not all people agree with that kind of thinking. And, and we get a hint of a problem when in verse 9 we hear this. Look at verse 9 again. Now that day was the Sabbath. The man was healed on the Sabbath. No big deal, right? Just a side note here from John, right? (laughs) No, this is a big deal. And you can see it here unfolding in the test. It's actually, actually the key to our passage today. That little statement. That's not a throwaway statement. Now, now that day was the Sabbath. From here on, as we continue on in John's Gospel, we're going to see the opposition 
to Jesus only grows until it finally results in his death on the cross. So why does Jesus do this? Why did he choose to heal this man on the Sabbath? Couldn't he have found and healed him on a different day? In fact, he could have. But this is no mistake. Jesus makes no mistakes. And Jesus is intentional. He is on mission. I appreciate the comments that uh, pastor and Bible commentator John MacArthur points out as he says, Jesus' refusal to observe the legalistic and man-made Sabbath regulations of rabbinic tradition was a major point of contention between him and Israel's religious establishment. In fact, the Lord deliberately chose to heal this man on the Sabbath to confront superficial and bankrupt Jewish legalism. The man's condition was not life-threatening, and he was constantly at the pool. Jesus could have easily chosen another day to heal him, but the Lord not only wanted to show mercy to this man, he also wanted to call the nation to repentance by confronting the self-righteous and unbiblical stipulations that led to their illusion of spiritual life. They had become experts at substituting their traditions for God's commands. So this was no mistake by Jesus here. He certainly knew what he was doing. And so we pick up at verse 10, look at verses 10 and 11. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Now just think about this for a moment. Here's how legalistic these Jewish religious leaders had become. Here's a man who's been incapacitated for 38 years. And this Sabbath day, the first day this man has been able to carry his bedroll, his first time walking in 38 years, and they are more concerned that he's breaking the Sabbath than with the fact that a miracle has been worked in this man's life. A miracle for which they should have been praising God. This was one of their many man-made regulations. No working on the Sabbath. You couldn't even carry a, a, a needle in your garment on the Sabbath. No carrying your bedroll on the Sabbath. God had not given them, given them this command. This did not come from God. This was their rule. But here they are, and they had come up with all kinds of rules and regulations about the kinds of things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, and many, many, many other things. The problem was, that they imagined that all their rulemaking and rule-keeping made them acceptable in God's sight. And that is just what Jesus is challenging here by healing this man on the Sabbath. 
It's also interesting here, and did you notice this, how quickly this man places the blame on Jesus. (laughs) The man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. This kind of sounds like we're back in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis, doesn't it? The woman you gave me, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, said Adam. So what do these religious leaders say? Look at verse 12. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You show us that man. Tell us who this is. We want to we have a conversation with him. So what do these religious, religious leaders say? They're, they're, getting, they're trying to get to the bottom of this, but this man didn't know who it was. We see that in the text. He doesn't know who it was who had healed him. Why? Because it says Jesus had slipped away. Now why did he do that? Why didn't he stay? Well, verse 13 says, For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now that's one reason we know that this encounter with this lame man was not primarily about physical healing. Because Jesus knew that if he stayed, if he had stayed at Bethesda long, he'd be surrounded by people who wanted to be healed when they saw this man that they knew had been lame for a long time, coming to the pool every day, being brought to the pool every day. Now he's up and he's walking who is that man? That's what would have happened. He would have, been, he would have been surrounded by people who wanted healing. But Jesus was on mission. And he would not be deterred. He shows compassion, yes, to this one man. This man in desperate need of help. But he's also concerned with what he's ultimately there to accomplish. He's concerned with taking on the faulty thinking and false teaching of these Jewish religious leaders. He wants to bring truth and light into the darkness. So Jesus, after slipping away, he goes, this man goes away, he took his bed and walked, and then Jesus slips away, and then Jesus goes looking for this man. And note that as soon as the man learns who Jesus is, he goes back to the religious authorities. Did you see that in verse 15? He says, the man man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. It's remarkable. I think that this man didn't show honor to Jesus for healing him. He, He doesn't say, I'll show you the man. This man healed me. How, how wonderful, how incredible, and I want to praise God for this. It doesn't say that he said that. It's remarkable that he, that he doesn't honor Jesus. Instead, he shows loyalty to these religious leaders, and we don't hear a hint of joy or gratitude for what Jesus had done for him. Be on guard, believers, that you don't become like this. Ask God to help you see clearly the many blessings that are ours. Ask God to help you see how He blesses you, how He is helping you, how He has given you His Word to to strengthen you and help you. Be very careful you're not hard-hearted, that you don't become so accustomed to God's blessings that you think you deserve them. 
that you think you've earned them. God is gracious, isn't He? And there are many common graces that all mankind enjoys. Putting my feet in the, in the surprisingly warm Lake Erie this week. A common grace, creation that we enjoy. Common grace of God. But believers enjoy especially incredible showering and blessing of God's grace on them. And we ought never get so accustomed to it that we think that we've earned them for ourselves and deserve them from God. He is gracious to us. Well, these Jewish religious leaders, they weren't joyous for him and they weren't interested in giving God glory. They were only concerned about their rules. They were more concerned with their tradition. They were more concerned with finding out who would dare challenge their Sabbath rules. Who would do that? Look again at what follows in verse 16. And verse 16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. And from here on, from here on out, the persecution of Jesus would only increase. It would only get more intense. And note how Jesus responds to the challenge from the Jewish religious leaders. Verse 17 But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Here's the point. Jesus is saying, Yes, you you may have your rules about the Sabbath, but the maker of the Sabbath, (laughs) the creator of the Sabbath, my Father works on the Sabbath, and so do I. What day? Just think of it. What day could be more appropriate for healing this lame man than on the Sabbath? And that's another pointer to the deity of Jesus Christ. My Father is working, he says, until now, and I am working. And there's another indicator of who he is in verse 18 when he says, this is why, verse 18, uh, the Apostle John says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Think of this for a moment. If Jesus wasn't God in human flesh, it seems he would have tried to correct their thinking because they were accusing him of making himself equal with God, but he doesn't correct their thinking. So they worked all the more to kill him. They worked even harder to eliminate him. And church, here's the challenge I want you to hear today. This is something we all need to take to heart from this passage in John 5. And we all need to examine ourselves over this. And I'll just put it like this. Are you more concerned about your traditions, your spiritual traditions, than you are with obeying God? We can all become like this. Where we have our spiritual traditions and we elevate them and we list them out in our minds as essential. What kinds of things are you substituting for being righteous before God? You see, this is the only thing that matters. Are we righteous before God? Are we obeying His Word? What kinds of things 
Have you allowed in your life to take the place of being obedient to God's Word? You see, these Jewish religious leaders were experts at making regulations. They even even knew the Scriptures. But they were not applying the Scriptures to their lives. They were only concerned with their rule-keeping and that everyone else keep their rules. Another Bible commentator, A.W. Pink, wrote about this tendency that we all have to rebel against God, which was obvious in the conduct of these religious leaders and is a warning to us when he wrote, in criticizing Him, Jesus, they were murmuring against God Himself. Therefore, we say we have here an uh, we say we have here an out and out exposure of that carnal mind, which is enmity against God. That carnal mind, which my reader, that's us, is by nature in each of us. How this reveals the awful depravity of the fallen creature. How it demonstrates our deep need of a savior. How it makes manifest the wondrous grace of God which provided a Savior for such incorrigible rebels. And that's us. Praise God for our Savior. Praise God. He saves incorrigible rebels. He forgives incorrigible rebels. And may we take God's Word seriously today and every day and elevate the, the instruction of His Word in our eyes, in our minds, above our list-keeping, our rule-keeping. And may God's Word today challenge and convict us where we need to be challenged and convicted. And may God's Word instruct and encourage us to live all for God's glory this week, pursuing holiness holiness and righteousness before God because we honor His Word and we take His Word personally and seriously, pursuing holiness before God over all, over and above all of our man-made regulations. May we not put anything above obedience to the Scriptures and honoring God with our lives. And may our church, may this church be centered on the Word.